The following episode includes violent content that may be disturbing to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. You're listening to Down Home Fear, exploring true crimes and strange happenings of the American South. Traveling can be a thrilling experience. Leaving one's hometown to visit new and exciting areas allows us to better understand the world, to meet new people, and to see things we otherwise never would see. And yet, some people have never even left their home state, perhaps because of money or illness or anxiety. The thing about travel, especially to new areas, is that you have to keep your guard up. Not all strangers are friendly. Seemingly goodwilled gestures can be fraught with ulterior motivations, and as sad as it is to say, sometimes our trust can be our undoing. Today, we'll talk about how several young women who left the safety of home met brutal, tragic ends. And of course, we'll examine the monster responsible. I'm H.H. Keegan. Welcome back to Down Home Fear. People rarely become predators overnight. Often, a pattern of escalating cruelty and disregard for human life can be traced all the way back to a killer's early childhood. Meet Oba Chandler, a career criminal whose peculiarities seem as if they were borrowed from a cheap murder mystery paperback. He was white, born on October 11, 1946, and raised in Cincinnati, Ohio. After his father committed suicide when Oba was just 10 years old, it's been claimed that he jumped into the open grave at the funeral to help stomp down the dirt as it was shoveled in. For a period of time, he reportedly drove a black van, the sides of which he had adorned with an elaborate scene of a demonic motorcycle rider speeding through a graveyard. By age 14, he had been arrested 20 times. The charges included things such as Grand Theft Auto, and these transgressions foreshadowed worse things to come. As an adult, he would be charged with things such as kidnapping, burglary, and armed robbery. As Chandler grew older, sexual elements began emerging in his crimes. In 1971, when he was in his mid-20s, He was arrested for masturbating while peering through a woman's window late one night in Cincinnati. At some point, he made his way to the state of Florida. It was there during an armed robbery where he forced a woman to strip down to her underwear and then bound her while rubbing the barrel of his gun across her stomach. 
Ultimately, he would settle in the city of Tampa, a moderately-sized coastal city positioned about halfway down the Florida Peninsula. The population at the time was about 270,000. Tampa sits alongside the aptly named Tampa Bay, a massive body of water that connects to the Gulf of Mexico. Despite his sordid past and escalating violent tendencies, Chandler was known by his neighbors as being a polite and unremarkable man. By the time he was living in Tampa, he was in his late 30s, balding and sporting a well-groomed mustache. He was around 5 foot 10 and 200 pounds, stocky but also broad-shouldered with powerful upper body strength. He earned his living working as an unlicensed aluminum siding contractor, and in May of 1988, he married a woman. Together, they bought a house, and it happens to be walking distance from a public boat ramp that provided access to Tampa Bay. They also had a child together, which, unbeknownst to his new wife, was Chandler's eighth child. He had previously conceived children with six other women. Chandler owned a small fishing boat with a blue hull and white deck that he frequently invited people out onto. In mid-May of 1989, Oba Chandler, using a false name, invited a female tourist from Canada for a private sunset boat ride on the bay. The woman's name was Judy Blair, and she was just 24 years old. Once they were far offshore, where no other boats were sailing, Chandler's mild-mannered demeanor vanished, and he suddenly pulled a knife and forced himself on the young woman. Judy Blair later said that Chandler vomited after committing the rape, and then remained out on the water with her trapped on board until after nightfall, at which point he piloted his boat near the shoreline and ordered the traumatized woman to swim to safety. After she had swam to shore, Blair showered and then went to a police station to report the assault. However, because she had swam in the ocean and then showered, any genetic evidence that could be used to identify her attacker had been destroyed. Remember that Chandler had used a false name, so the police weren't able to pull him up in their record system. However, Judy Blair was luckily able to provide police with a highly detailed description of him and sketch artists created a stunningly accurate portrait of Chandler. Sadly, this sketch was not distributed widely enough or quickly enough for other women to be saved. Later in the same month that Judy Blair had been assaulted, 36-year-old Joan Rogers and her two teenage daughters, Michelle, who was 17, and Christy, who was just 14, left the small town of Wilshire, Ohio. They were going on their very first real vacation. They lived and worked in a small dairy farming community, 
and had never had the opportunity to travel outside of the state of Ohio. Joan's husband, Hal Rogers, would stay behind to attend to the family farm. Joan had decided that she and her daughters would visit Florida, see the ocean, enjoy the tropical weather, do new things. And things were going great, but after visiting southern Florida, they became lost, and eventually she wound up in the city of Tampa. On June 1st, 1989, Joan stopped at a gas station in Tampa to ask for directions. The person she happened to flag down was none other than Oba Chandler. And after writing Joan some directions to a nearby hotel, Chandler casually asked if she and her daughters enjoyed boat rides, saying he gave sunset tours of the bay. Joan, eager to turn their unexpected detour into an opportunity, agreed and Chandler wrote directions to a boat ramp on the back of a brochure that Joan had in the car. He noted that he owned a blue boat with a white deck. After checking into their hotel, Joan and her daughters headed to the boat ramp Chandler had given them directions to, unaware that they had just hours to live. It is unknown exactly how the events unfolded that evening, after the woman stepped on Chandler's boat and drifted out into the receding daylight. Investigators inferred that Chandler had drawn a knife on his unwitting captives, similar to the way he had ambushed Judy Blair just weeks earlier. He bound them with thin yellow rope and presumably sexually assaulted them for a period of time that may have lasted hours. When night fell, he piloted his boat far out into a remote region of Tampa Bay and tied 30-pound cinder blocks around their necks, duct-taped their mouths shut, and threw them overboard into the pitch-black water while they were still alive. Just minutes later, Chandler used his boat's radio to call his wife and tell her that he'd encountered engine problems and was going to be getting home later than expected. passed, and on June 4th, 1989, Joan and her two daughters, bloated and badly decomposed bodies, were found floating in the bay. The water was unusually warm that month, and as their bodies decomposed, gases had quickly built up and actually caused them to rise to the surface while still attached to the cinder blocks. At first, police encountered difficulty identifying them, but after the story was reported on the local news, the owner of the hotel where the Rogerses had been staying 
called into the Tampa Police Department saying that a woman and her two daughters had checked in but never checked out. Now armed with the victims' names, police were able to use dental records to officially confirm the identities of Joan, Michelle, and Christy. As is often the case with crimes such as this one, Joan's husband, Hal Rogers, was initially suspected of the murders. However, his name was quickly cleared as he had been hundreds of miles away in Ohio, busy working on his dairy farm during the time his wife and daughters disappeared, and he had multiple witnesses to confirm that. The salt water of Tampa Bay and the quick rate of decomposition had erased virtually all evidence the investigators could use to identify the killer. But there was still hope. Joan's car had been found parked near the boat ramp where she'd met Chandler on June 1st. It was there that police recovered the brochure where Chandler had written brief instructions for how to find the boat ramp. He'd also included the detail that his boat was blue with a white deck. Although this would later become a critical detail, at the time, it was relatively little to go on, and over three years passed before Chandler would be caught. During this three-year period, Chandler continued his series of rapes and murders. In 2014, DNA evidence would reveal that on November 27, 1990, Chandler struck again, this time in Coral Springs, Florida, about four hours south of Tampa. His victim was 20-year-old Ivelisse Berrios Begaris. It is believed that Chandler slashed the tires on her car while she was finishing her shift working at a local mall. Chandler approached her when she discovered her disabled vehicle and played the Good Samaritan, offering to give her a ride home. She agreed, at which point he abducted, raped, and strangled her, hastily dumping her body in a nearby suburban area. From June of 1989 until September of 1992, Oba Chandler remained a free man. Tampa police were running out of ideas on how they could bring the perpetrator behind the Rogers family murders to justice. They were also facing an increasing amount of pressure to abandon the investigation and label it a cold case. But a major break would come at the very last minute. In a last-ditch effort, investigators made the very unusual decision to post the sample of the handwriting that had been recovered from Joan's car on billboards throughout the Tampa area. The billboard showed an enlarged image of the handwriting and contained the simple message that if anyone who saw the handwriting recognized who it was from, to contact the local police. The shocking triple homicide had remained in the public's memory ever since the bodies had been discovered years earlier. 
And now hundreds of leads began pouring in. Investigators worked around the clock to follow up on all of the new tips they were receiving. Until they came across one from a woman named Joanne Steffi. She had called investigators saying that she recognized the handwriting as being that of a contractor who had done maintenance work on her property. The contractor, she said, was named Oba Chandler, and she said that she'd always found him to be shifty and suspicious. She even provided copies of handwritten receipts he'd given her for the work that he'd done on her property. Handwriting analysts quickly confirmed that Oba Chandler's handwriting matched the note written on the brochure in Joan's car. At that time, Chandler was 43 years old. His home was less than a mile away from the boat ramp Joan's car had been parked at, and his extensive criminal record sent up immediate red flags for investigators. Chandler was arrested on September 24, 1992. His handwriting and fingerprints connected him to the scene of the crime, but Judy Blair, the young Canadian tourist who he had raped years earlier, was able to put the final nail in the coffin. She flew to Tampa, Florida, and picked Chandler out of a police lineup, recognizing him instantly. Chandler maintained his innocence throughout his trial. He even elected to represent himself in court, something that his court-appointed attorney strongly advised against. The prosecution used the eyewitness testimony of Judy Blair, the radio call logs Chandler had made from his boat on the night of June 1, 1989, and the handwriting evidence to connect him with the Rogers murders. Chandler attempted to concoct a defense wherein he said that he had indeed provided directions to Joan Rogers so that she could find her hotel, but that he was out fishing alone on June 1, 1989. He said that was when he encountered issues with the fuel line on his boat and returned to shore later than usual. He even said that he had tried flagging down a Coast Guard vessel for help, but they were occupied with another matter and unable to assist him. Chandler's explanation of events was contradicted by the evidence investigators had collected against him. On November 4, 1994, Chandler was convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to death. He attempted to appeal his conviction numerous times, all of them unsuccessful, and maintained his innocence until his death. Chandler was noted for not having a single visitor during the 17 years he spent on death row. On November 15, 2011, Oba Chandler was executed by lethal injection at Florida State Prison, the same facility where Eileen Warnos and Ted Bundy had been executed. He was pronounced dead at 4.25 p.m. The widower and bereaved parent, Hal Rogers, was present for the execution.
This is one of those episodes where, as I was researching it, it was genuinely sending chills down my spine. The stuff that this man, Oba Chandler, was capable of is just so disturbing and malicious and brutal and disgusting and horrible and terrifying and just like all these any just negative word you can think of I think could have been applied to that guy while he was alive and if you want I guess even in death one of the things that I wanted to mention in this little epilogue segment is that the police sketch that the Tampa Police Department came up with based off of Judy Blair's description truly is almost a photographic representation of what Oba Chandler looked like in the late 80s. It's really, really stunningly accurate, and I will post a picture of it up on the website www.downhomefear.com if you want to go there and check it out. It is really, really impressive how good a job Judy Blair did of describing him like right down to every little detail, um, including his facial hair, you know, like the way his cheekbones were. It's, it's really, really crazy to, uh, to look at. Another thing I wanted to mention in general, just as an overall statement about this particular case, is that the police department was unbelievably lucky that they were actually able to catch this guy in the manner that they did. The handwriting sample was literally like less than 12 words, and his handwriting isn't particularly distinctive so I think that it's it's genericness would have thrown most people off so another thing that I, I I'm really impressed by actually with with people being very astute and tuned in and intelligent is that that woman Joanne Steffi was able to just be driving down the road one day look up, see this handwriting on a billboard and managed to think to herself, oh, wow, that looks familiar. Let me go cross-reference it with my receipts that I keep records of. You know, it's just across the board, it's incredibly, incredibly lucky that they were able to catch Oba Chandler before he committed any more of those heinous, disgusting acts and I um, should also mention that there is a really good episode of Forensic Files about this case. It is from one of the later seasons, I think. It's entitled Waterlogged, and it's actually what inspired me to put this podcast episode together. I'm sure I've probably mentioned it on here at some point, but... Forensic Files is one of the reasons I got really interested in true crime as a kid, 
And even now as an adult, and even though it's been off the air for a while, some of the, and in fact, many of these episodes are actually really worthwhile to go back through and, and rewatch because, you know, they're, they're very well done and they're only a half hour long. So it's not like you're going to be sitting down and watching like, you know, a full length, like Ken Burns documentary or something. They're just, they're very accessible. And I think they're very approachable, even for people who are, who are not major fans of science and forensics and the nuts and bolts of what goes on in police work and things like that. So anyway, that's a really, really long-winded way of saying there's a great episode of Forensic Files. It's called Waterlogged. Check it out. It's about this case. You can see the um, the interviews with Joanne Steffi, and you can see interviews with some of the investigators who were involved. Unfortunately, the episode came out before they found the connection to, between um, uh, Chandler's DNA and the uh, young woman who who was raped in uh, 1990 in, in Coral Springs. So unfortunately, that part isn't covered, but, you know, nonetheless, very good watch. As I research more and more stuff for this show, I, I've started to notice similarities between the perpetrators and I mean it's it's not like stuff that hasn't been said before but just the the way that these individuals prey on others the way these people take advantage of naivety or good-naturedness and um, end up using it against people is so sickening and upsetting to me and I, uh, I'm, I'm sure many of you feel the same way. I, I wanted to mention that one of the things I read about the Rogers family is that the none of the girls or, or the mother knew how to swim. I was wondering if the reason the Rogers women, or I guess the Rogers girls really, were killed is, is because they could not swim back to shore and Chandler uh, panicked in, in a way and uh, realized that he wasn't going to be able to get them off the boat without it being really obvious and without having a high potential for someone seeing him. Um, for example, if he went back to the boat ramp and was unloading his boat, you, you know there would be other people around and they would see these uh, these three people bound and, and gagged and stuff. That's just a theory that I had. I mean, I think it's probably more likely that this guy was just a a cold-blooded killer and ha- had just been escalating over over the years toward more and more extremely violent behavior. With all of that said, I think it's surprising, actually, that Chandler was executed because there was really not much physical evidence tying him to the deaths of those women. 
Um, remember that the the woman that he killed in 1990, uh, he wasn't linked to that until after he had been executed, actually. So at the time, investigators only knew about the Rogers murders and the um, rape of uh, Miss Judy Blair. And with with that in mind, like they didn't they didn't really have anything directly. Uh, they didn't have like a video of him at the dock um, bringing the women onto his boat. He didn't. They didn't have a video of him dumping the the women into the bay or anything like that. And I think that if Chandler had agreed to have been represented by a proper attorney, I think that he would have ended up with a much different sentence. And I mean, he, he may not have, have been able to have been convicted of, of first degree murder of those women. I think that this dude was just kind of an idiot. And I haven't watched any of the video. I'm not even sure if any courtroom video exists of this, but I, I would imagine that he, like most, you know, narcissistic, antisocial psychopaths, overestimated his own abilities and ended up digging himself a much deeper hole than he was already in. As far as if the death penalty was warranted in this case, you know, I can't answer that. I think that's that was up to the jury, and they uh, they clearly reached their verdict. Feel free to join the conversation if you would like. You can join the Down Home Fear podcast Facebook group and catch some of the conversations over there. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter at Down Home Fear. If you have comments, uh, suggestions, story ideas, etc., please send them to me at downhomefear at gmail.com. And finally, if you're looking for extra content, make sure you check out www.downhomefear.com. I know as you listen to me just rattle those off, it sounds like a lot of different places, but basically if you Google Down Home Fear, like most of that stuff will come up. Remember, you can support this show by simply giving a five-star rating on iTunes you can also support the show by telling your friends about it and posting about it on social media. That is really, really tremendously helpful. And both of those things are, you know, free and they, they don't take uh, more than a minute or two of your time. So it, it really is greatly, greatly appreciated. One last thing before I wrap up, I wanted to extend a bit of thanks to my good friend Skylar Ann. She is a photographer who was kind enough to come over to my studio slash apartment that I live in, and she uh, did some really great headshots that I've been able to use for the Down Home Fear website and social media presences.
Anyway, her company is called Skyler Ann Photography, LLC. And if you live in the Washington, D.C. area, be sure to look her up if you need portraits, wedding photos, etc., etc. I don't normally do plugs on the show, but I really, really appreciated her help, and she's been a very early supporter of DHF, as well as a longtime friend. So again, the company is Skylar Ann Photography, LLC, and the website is Skylar, S-K-Y-L-E-R, Ann, A-N-N-E, photography.com. Thank you for listening. My name is H.H. Keegan. This has been another installment of Down Home Fear. Fear is an independently produced podcast. To support the show, visit www.downhomefear.com.